What's your intentions, Corncop? I mean to pack you in one minute, Briar. I see you smoked at Fort Virginia at Judge Burley's convenience. Which would you have? I think that's bold talk for aromatic shag blend. Fill your pipe, you son of a bitch. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy holiday, Merry Christmas. It's that festive time of year where lights are glowing and Christmas presents are being wrapped and Santa Claus is coming to town. Mm-hmm. Do you enjoy this time of year? I do. I uh, like I like I like the very beginning of winter. So December twenty first to about uh, January tenth, mm-hmm. and then from there on, I'm like, okay, let's get to spring. Hmm. The problem with winter is, is that like you only get like really four to seven, eight days of actual enjoyment out of winter because winter, December 21st, shortest day. Yep. You get to the new year and then if you're not lucky enough to be a federal employee or some sort of employee that would get like state benefits or something like that, then basically you're stuck on what I call the long winter's haul because there are literally no holidays. Mm-hmm. Uh, for non-state or federal employees till May. Mm-hmm. Usually usually people get off for about Memorial Day or something, but like that that long haul is the worst. Absolutely the worst. We're smoking outside, so you might, as, might hear some dogs barking in the distance because you just really, it's difficult to record and without like some sort of sound stage. So there's just tons yeah. of activity going on in this neighborhood. And naturally, I guess, you know, when doing a podcast or recording any kind, you know, you want, I've always heard like a closet is pretty good, like a, you know, like a carpeted closet, but we're smoking pipes, so. That's the issue is like, so you guys kind of get the winter festivities of being inside my garage with the garage door open so we don't smoke out everything. I mean, it took me 30 minutes just to get my dogs to be quiet. But, um, so in the spirit of Christmas and Santa Claus, we are smoking um, Seattle Pipe Club's Wild Man, which I don't think it necessarily connects to, what, to Christmas, really. Not yet. But, but we're going we're to make get it. it. We're going to break, we're going to break down this tobacco first. Uh, this is a relatively new, I think it came out in August 2019. Oh, is that? Oh, I didn't know that. And this is really new stuff. Mm. I'm pretty sure. Well, I know for a fact I've only seen reviews dating back to about September, August, like on YouTube or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, tobacco Review doesn't have too many reviews up, I don't think. And I think the camp is kind of split. Like, I think it's like a hard 2.7 mm. out of, what, five? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, it's like a weirdly divisive tobacco. I feel like people feel like it's too weak, probably because they're coming at it from the plum pudding camp, yeah. which is going to be a little bit more Latakia, a little bit more everything under the kitchen sink. Yeah, it's like a Balkan anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, and like a signifier for that to me is just going to be like a huge, like every time someone says a Balkan, mm-hmm. um, or however people define it. I always think of like sort of a heavy Oriental, heavy Latakia 
And those usually, every time I've smoked them, they've always ended up being some sort of lat bomb. And then, you know, you're, you know, you sort of, you really do get so much out of it. And smoking it slow can kind of be a nightmare because it goes on because they tend to, the Balkans that I've smoked tend to be wet. Mm. And they're actually difficult to control in my opinion. But I mean, I've never been really a, you know, I've always been the Oriental Ford on the English side. Um, and, you know, if I had the choice, I would always go with like uh, holding back on the Latakia, moving forward on the Oriental tobaccos. I feel like they give a spicier, richer flavor. Um, I would much rather have like an Oriental vapor mm. um, as yeah. opposed to putting in like everything and then top coating it with some sort of whiskey or rum or something like that to try to marry everything up and blend it into one consistent uh, flavoring. But that doesn't mean that it's necessarily bad. It's just I prefer sort of the light, kind of delicate, almost citrusy, spicy flavors of the Oriental to, uh, say, a Latakia, which really has that woodsy campfire, which leads us into Wild Man. Yeah. Uh, Wild Man to me, as of right now, is a more tame uh, version of plum pudding. I think they've really just taken out the Latakia, if you can really taste it at all. There's an interesting top note on it, which I don't really, I haven't identified yet, but um, you can taste that they've really gone more Oriental forward, more Virginia forward, uh, and, and lightened up the load as far as uh, the Latakia, if there even is any. Um, or just, uh, you know, just the way they remixed it. It does taste, it has elements that remind me so much of plum pudding. Yeah. Which makes me think that there might be like a touch of Cavendish in here. That's actually throwing mm-hmm. off like the way I would normally take in an Oriental Ford English. The tin note really reminds me of plum pudding. I mean, it's lighter, but... Uh, that's why I have a sneaking suspicion that there's some Cavendish in here. Because to me, plum pudding always smoked relatively sweet. I mean, there's a smokiness to it, but there's a sweetness to it mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is undeniable. I, coming from, because last time, you know, we were smoking Nightcap. Um, you know, coming from Nightcap to this. I love Nightcap. I love Ashton uh, Artisan's blend. But I do like the lightness of this, the, the, the pulling back on the Latakia. Well, you don't have to smoke it so heavily. And in fact, so doing, you end up kind of like pulling out some of the minor, subtler flavors. Um, it's really light. Really, really light. And it stays lit really well, too. Like, I'm definitely smoking it probably not in the perfect pipe. I think um, the pipe that I have really is just more so it's like my Christmas pipe. Which is a it's a Mario Grande Church Warden with kind of a sandblasted bowl. Mm. It looks really rough. Uh, it's nice, anybody though. who would look at it would definitely say that it is a Merlin wizard pipe, and we'll get into why I consider it a Christmas pipe very soon. But um, yeah, I think uh, it was actually surprising because the theme of this episode um, will be about the origin of Santa Claus, uh, specifically. Um, how we perceive him and how he is historically uh, been come across throughout time, uh, be it um, a bishop from 
Northern Africa to even connections with Robin Hood or Merlin to a certain extent. Um, and um, one of the books that we'll be referencing is uh, called Santa Claus Last of the Wild Men by Phyllis Seifker. Um, it does, tr- I mean, it, it does traverse a lot of, a lot of topics. Um, it's a very like uh, dense book, um, oh, easy man. read, but Oof. like a lot of stuff to take in. We will not be discussing all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of like something that I enjoy reading every Christmas, uh, this is one of them uh, because it just really goes into like that sort of origin, uh, that history of something that I think people really don't pay too much attention to. And uh, like I said, as it's called, Last of the Wild Men, uh, Patrick, uh, looking through a Pipes and Cigars magazine, I think. Yeah, I think so. Uh, accidentally stumbled upon this new blend by Seattle Pipe Club. And the irony of like connecting uh, this book to a tobacco uh, just out of nowhere was, uh, I don't know, I mean, it was just so perfect that we ended up ordering it straight away. Yeah, because I want to say that, so sometimes, you know, we'll have stuff sent to our work, you know, just for ease of convenience. Um, and before we have had some blends sent there. And so they have like Zach's address, or Zach's mainly address for Pipes and Cigars, I think is the word. It is. So the magazine came, or the, the catalog came, and he just walked in one day, threw it on the desk, it was like, here you go. I'm like, I'd already had, I already had one, but he just threw it down. And then randomly I looked at it, like I f- flipped a couple pages and saw Wild Man. I thought, ooh, you know, I, I had already bought the book after he had talked about it. And, um, the, and then it, it slipped my mind for like a week. And then it, then I, I remembered and I was like, oh, dang. When he brought it up to me, he goes, what do you think? And I was like, we need to get this. <laughs> I was pretty much on top of that. But before I could even, uh, before I can even get to pipes and cigars or smoking pipes to place my order, Patrick's like, all right, it's on its way. I was like, good Lord. <laughs> it was over like a five second text conversation. It was just like, hey, look at this snapshot. And I was like, that's amazing. I went to tobacco reviews, just read a little bit about it. And I was mm. like, yeah, let's take a gamble. This is too perfect. Yeah. And before I could even say like, I'm about to order it, Patrick had already purchased it and had it coming on its way. Yeah. Um. I mean, it, it, yeah, it was just a, a stumble of luck, and, um, you know, it. I'm happy we got it, because, I mean, it's a really good blend. I was not expecting much. You know, I thought it was going to be like a one-off. You know, like, not to speak ill of previous blends we've smoked, but Thanksgiving Day, I mean, it's, there's nothing to really talk about too much. I mean, but, well, the, any type of, like, heavily perfumed, sweetened mm-hmm. Cavendish even if it did have some like age burly I have even age burly to a certain extent if it's not dark fired or has some other accent to it 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 marries up with flavors so easily um, and sort of creates like a, a plume of smoke in your mouth like you're really not doing anything but just masking everything and having it blend with a burly which isn't doing anything for me yeah like I said like you know burly has a tendency to really just take on whatever flavor is put around it which is good if you're if you're into you know a uh, heavily flavored Cavendish or aromatic uh, yeah. 
I guess technically Cavendish doesn't absolutely have to be flavored, but um, in this case, it, it is. Burley's what's in most cigarettes, right? The bigger part That's of right. it. Because it's just a smoky thing. It, right. It's like a filler. Uh, they also do, like, one of the things about Burley is it does have a huge nick hit, too. Which is crazy, because I, I'm, y'all probably heard this a thousand times, but I don't, I'm not in it for the nicotine hit, but I tend to lean towards Burley's, Burley blends. That's, you know, I mean, they're not bad, necessarily. I think that, like, the reason why I enjoy Burley, because a Kentucky Fire, mm-hmm. that's a Burley. Yeah. Isn't uh, Latakia a Burley? Uh, oh, what is Latakia? So. I think it's Izmir, then smoked. I could be wrong. Though. Oh, so it, it, to get it, you do the same as you do to Burley to get dark fire. Right. But... Yeah, so oh, like oh. just a little bit different because it's a different tobacco, so it takes on different characteristics. And then I think they smoke it for way, way longer. Mm. Uh, Latakia. I could be wrong. I mean, there's an old myth that like they smoked it with like camel dung, but uh, pretty sure that's a myth. So, yeah. but I mean, like it's usually like hardwoods, sweet woods, things like that. And they they smoke it, and it gets that sort of almost aromatic quality to it. But I would call it that campfire. Aroma and the stuff is so strong. Or that, that's right. Yeah, and the stuff is so strong that, man. I mean, it's. I mean, it's good when when it's done right. But I it mean, can be very overpowering. Well, because there's there's two blends that we both sort of enjoy. Um, I mean, I like Star of the East, and then what's the other one that's like it? Commonwealth. Commonwealth. I mean, they're they're like half. Half Virginia, half Latakia. Yeah, usually, I think. And they're and they're both good. Yeah. I don't. There's nothing wrong with it. I think it's kind of into what, what you're into. And like I said, that, that's such a subjective thing because you can like it. I like it, but I typically lean towards an Oriental Ford or a light English. They just, I feel like they're more complicated. They have a little mm-hmm. bit more going for them. Uh, that Drucker and Sons, like Blair Gowry, and I feel like Chelsea Morning has that going for it. This as well has sort of a you know, a little bit more complex flavoring just because I'm not, like, really just having to sniff around the Latakia. That's just my opinion. Yeah. But, um, anyway, Patrick ordered this, and the stuff, even though we literally only ordered it because of the title of its of its namesake, you know, it actually ended up being really great. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, alluding to what we were talking about earlier, I believe, you know, of course, in their reference of calling it wild man it is more you know to like bigfoot um we can go we can read the pen description if you want to go go. ahead wild man pacific northwest legend tells of ancient giants roaming our misty mountain forests many have sought the wild man but the mystery remains our mysterious and delectable english tobacco can be found right inside this tin joe lankford created his all-day smoke from four complex leaf ingredients Pressed together in a cake, flakes or flavors are married and finely sliced. Uh, enjoy a delicious bowl of wild man, but remember he's out there somewhere, crafting the most sought-after small batch blends in America since twenty or since two thousand seven. Um, so yeah, you know it's more talking like Bigfoot, Sasquatch, things like that. And you know, to its credit, where we're about to go, guys, <laughs> like we will be diving into probably some of those legends tangentially so yes so without further ado i guess we can begin to talk about santa claus and yep. the wild man old saint nicholas so as 
many of you may have listened, I recently read um, for kind of a trailer uh, piece the uh, a visit from St. Nicholas or Twas the Night Before Christmas as most people know it. Um, and yeah, I just read the whole poem. But I wanted to briefly touch on um, a couple of notes inside the poem to kind of give you guys a little bit more direction. And I've got it right here, so I'm just going to reread it. Um, Down the chimney, St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held right in his teeth, and the smoke encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was a chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. So, in that quick passage, you don't see basically the incarnation of Santa Claus that we know today. Like, at all. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it mentions nothing about red. Mm-hmm. He is... <laughs> the Santa that... The, the Sort of the last vestige of that, that Santa is occasionally you'll see a pipe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not always evident. It's not always there. But there is a little bit of a... Every once in a while, I mean, like now that tobacco is so taboo, people occasionally put out like a pipe every once in a while, like old drawings from the 50s or something, but yeah. there really isn't anything like that anymore. Um, Coca-Cola definitely wouldn't, Mm-mm. you know, I mean, Santa Claus's pipe has essentially been replaced by a Coke bottle. <laughs> um, but as he says, he's like an elf, he's short, you know? Uh, a lot of people always question how a big old dude like Santa Claus could actually fit down a chimney. Well, in this poem specifically, he's described as, a, as an elf it, with eight tiny reindeer. And a miniature sleigh. And a miniature sleigh. Yeah. This is not, this is not some old guy, you know, burly, the size of, if not bigger than, you know, the front door, which is the way he's always sort of personified in film. And in uh, caricature drawings, or yeah. uh, I think, is it Norman Mailer? Not Norman Mailer, that's a writer. Norman Rockwell. Rock, yeah, yeah, Norman the, Rockwell. Those calendars and paintings. Yeah, is, yeah. his paintings are very famous, but they're very famous in terms of being very specific to a larger man, white beard. Like I said, I'm not 100% sure the you know, specifics of where the red outfit came from. A lot of people associate it with the Coca-Cola company, but if you read... He's in furs. He's covered in soot and ash. He's got probably, in this case, because of the time period, a clay pipe clenching his teeth. He's probably smoking up something real harsh. Um, if he's even smoking tobacco at all, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is a, in the terms of the book, a wild individual. Yeah. Who's come smashing into the house, clattering everything up, tearing it down, throwing himself into the chimney. He dashes through, throws a couple of things in, up the chimney goes, and then goes clattering off into the night with the magic power of, you know, essentially like a superhero, a being of another, yeah. you know, 
plane of existence. You know, I mean, this is almost like a god in the, in the Greek sort of Roman sense. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it feels that way is because literally that is where he comes from. The origin of Santa Claus, as it has always been told, has been the uh, bishop to, you know, the Saint Nicholas, the bishop of, uh, I think, Northern Africa or Turkey. It might have been Turkey. Um, yeah, I think it was Turkey. It was Turkey, you know, and he's a saint to young boys. I mean, there are uh, images of him, you know, saving children. He is, you know, the patron saint of young children. I think. Yeah, even, something like that. Even choir boys to a certain extent, you know, orphans kind of. Thing. Yeah, yeah, I think it, it gets specific because he yeah. was like one of the youngest uh, bishops ever, like a very, very young mm-hmm. bishop. The story goes that like. Um, when they were trying to replace the current standing priest or bishop, um, it was given to them by an angel or God himself uh, that the first person to enter the church uh, would be the next bishop of that community. And sure enough, young, like five-year-old St. Nicholas, (laughs) you know, walks in and they basically sanctify him right there, I think, like, or, or decree him. I'm not sure what the terminology is for when you become a part of the papacy or become indoctrinated or, or brought into uh, the priesthood. But right there in that moment, he was dubbed, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a priest, and uh, it was ordained by God or an angel or whatever. I mean, that is where most people see it. And then, and then over the years, they see this Turk, going around, delivering gifts, being friendly, um, and somehow that character sort of blended his way through time to be this elf crashing through chimneys. Um, (laughs) It's just such a strange thing. It almost doesn't even seem remotely connected. No. And, you know, that's one thing about this book that, like, it took... So I... I've read half of the book, um, and just like I think it's the, the fourth or third chapter alone, there's so much information there, and there's so much. And what what I enjoy about it is what I'm getting to is the author, she puts a lot of like stuff up front, like saying, you know, this is what, you know, supposedly how it was, but then you find out when oh, some other historian has said that's not right. Let's go down this path. Mm-hmm. So there's so many different truths and myths that sort of interconnect and, mm-hmm. and, and sort of muddy the waters on what his origin, uh, his real origin. Right. Um, you know, and it, from where I left off in the book, it almost seemed like St. Nicholas didn't create Santa Claus. Santa Claus created St. Nicholas. To a certain extent, yes. Yeah. And at least where we're at in the world. So Santa Claus is a much more ancient entity than modern Christianity. Um, this, uh, this is literally looked at as a spiritual deity, uh, more of a woods sort of fey character. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of Gaelic and uh, I think Western to some parts of Eastern Europe and Greece mm-hmm. um, have always found this wild man character as a part of their religion. Um, in Greek mythology, you can see him as Pan, Mm -hmm. Um, he's looked upon as the all-god 
in a sense before it sort of became more muddied and the Pantheon expanded. But Pan used to be like the sort of all father, quote unquote, the every god. He uh, had it. He had all. The yeah, he was sort skills. of dominion over yeah. all, and they sort of broke him out. But the Celts, Gaelics, uh, you know, they worshipped um, an entity known as the Wild Man, and what it was was a literal wild sort of uh, feral humanoid, very hairy, um, that would be sacrificed in the wintertime, specifically around the holidays of like Saturnalia, Mm -hmm. which is a Roman holiday, Um, and like around the time, you would see a lot of these stuff starting to come into play around October 31st. A lot of this has a lot of Halloween bleed in, where harvest is ending, you're starting to roll into winter and you know in an ancient situation when you're thinking in terms of like you know ancient rites yeah um winter is a dead month and you know if you were if you were you know beyond reason i suppose if you didn't think that maybe the sun would come up tomorrow or that perhaps like spring wouldn't come back cuz we know it is cyclic now we know that that Every winter is perennial, just like spring, fall, summer is. But in the case of someone who would not have had that with modern weather patterns and understanding of, like, circulation and, like, the way the sun hits the earth, the angle of the earth, its axis, etc., um, it could be kind of a scary thought that perhaps there wouldn't be a spring where everything would blossom. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways in which that this was remedied is through ritual. Uh as ancient as anything else would be the rights of fertility. In this case, uh, how to reclaim those rights is typical with sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And what the ancients would do is they would pull this wild man out, bearded, fur, half animal, crazed, um, usually with a large penis, you know, very phallic, and they would bring him into the community and he would sleep with one of the women, and then after he had mated with her as a way to which would restore fertility in humans so they could actually spread, then they would all collectively sacrifice the wild man. And then as he lay dying, his blood and himself would revitalize the land for the spring. And then through some sort of cyclic resurrection, he would be revived. Uh, it sort of came later as a doctor and other elements in which like his revival or resurrection would just happen. I'm assuming that is like sort of a, a weird metaphor um, to the ancients. Like, well, then he would be resurrected and that would be like its own coming of spring. But in certain cases, when, um, as discussed in the book, shamans and leaders were basically of the same and when they would put on the parody or in certain instances the literal embodiment of the god in this case the wild man that they these these shaman would literally be sacrificed and killed and then 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 in some places the the deity and the king were one and the same that's right so like eventually the I guess one king got wise to it. He was like, well, I, I'm not coming back. Well, a great example of that would be Egypt. Yeah. In which the pharaoh in and of himself is the god. Mm-hmm. You know? 
that the leader is the godhead of the community. But as politics and religion sometimes have a, they will have a tendency to bleed into one another. But also, those things can be conflicting when you have to lead a people, but also by December you have to die. So in that conflict, yeah, there there sort of had to be a reimagining of how that uh, sort of went out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that went out through mummings and plays, you know. Oh, the mummings. That's one of the, my favorite parts of what I've read so far, the mummings. Because so. there, there still is that parade in Pennsylvania, is it? Mm-hmm. Or Philadelphia? Mm-hmm. Well, same thing, but yeah, Philadelphia, and it's sort of like a, I mean, it's almost to the extent of Mardi Gras, like how wild it is. Yeah. Just, I mean, naturally, Mardi Gras is going to be its own thing, being in New Orleans, mm-hmm. uh, but it's sort of a version of that. It is. Um, which, it sounds like a lot of that mumming, again, talk talks to that bleeding into Halloween, you know, the, the two holidays have some similar... Yeah, because Origins. it has like a kind of a radical, like, they're taking on the personification of the wild man. The wild man being in these plays, these mummings, in ancient times, uh, being a sort of a right that people come in and they're terrorized mm-hmm. by this wild man. And the community, because it's, it's an outsider to the community, that ends up being the sacrifice for the community. And if you watch how that sort of evolves, like some of those things start to break away, split apart, and develop you know, de-evolve in a certain extent. Uh, so while the wild man is a, a hairy beast, a yeti, a sasquatch to a certain extent, mm-hmm. as he starts to begin to split away, then you start to see, as they pull back the layers, the different characteristics of Santa Claus. Like, he's woolly, he's wearing fur, he's covered in soot, he's smoking a pipe, he's wild as hell. Like, he's just <laughs> busting it up, you mm-hmm. know? And then you start to look at, like, other things. So, like, for the Pennsylvania Dutch, there's Pelsnickel. Mm-hmm. And the Pelsnickel is a Dutch Germany name. Pels meaning pelts or fur, and nickel is a Nicholas. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a furry claws character, which is like the vestige of the wild man right there. Mm-hmm. A guy, I mean, you can see him in two instances in this case. One being the wild man, being a furry wild creature. And then secondly, being a, in the poem, you know, a fur-covered, soot-covered elf, jolly, you know, sort of a merriment. Something that's going to bring fertility and festiveness to the land. Yeah. But at the same time, completely separate, completely different. You're not sacrificing Claus. No. You know, Claus is just bringing you stuff. Pelsnickel's the same way. Mm. And then even more so, you start to see other entities start to sprout out. Black Pete, which is another instance of the Dutch is a, in this case, a bishop had used Black Pete, a black child, who sort of like becomes the shadow of Santa Claus. Like these, all these things start to become like this entity that's separated out. Now, while once being, you know, close-knit, I mean, Black Pete, in a sense, may not even have been technically black. He might have just been soot-covered. Yeah. People look at it as blackface, but it's not necessarily, not necessarily in the historical context. And that could be wrong. Yeah. But at the same time, if you're talking about soot-colored wild men, mud-covered, you know, that's what they're trying to represent. It just happens to be bastardized over time, and yeah. then it starts to split away. So in, I think, Dutch culture, the fellow who follows the bishop, St. Nicholas, is Black Pete, and one of his roles is to punish children 
who have mm -hmm. been wrong or acted out. Yeah. Which is probably the reasoning we have coal or black coal that gets delivered out by Santa Claus. So, so like I said, some of these vestiges still exist. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily have to be a personification. It's just something that Santa Claus doles out himself. Just like Krampus, a wild beast monster, yeah. is another really spin-off from the wild man and a split away from Santa Claus. So you, you have the ultimate good and the ultimate evil. And these sort of things start to take on these new roles. In this case, the role of fear. In those parades and when they would bring out the wild man, people were literally scared to death. Yeah. Uh, Mercy Eliade, who's a Romanian philosopher, he wrote The Myth of the Eternal Return and Shamanism. And he has very explicit things to say about like these religious rites and these ceremonies and even it is mentioned inside uh, Phyllis's book that when they would take on the role of the wild man, they would literally become the personification of that deity mm. in which the people would act out and they would literally be fearful of the actor inside the costume to the point that someone got away with murder because as the wild man approached her, in this case, you know, in chains rattling, you know, a part of that ceremony she stabbed him to death and her justification and the reason she got off with it was well he was a demon mm. of course like I'm going to kill him I'm protecting myself natural. and that was the natural argument and she got away with it even though she killed someone but like in this case he enacted the entirety of the character to the point that even the citizens were not only scared but defended themselves and murdered him. They didn't know. Now, I'm not saying, down. like, obviously, naturally, the moral ambiguity of the whole thing just seems kind of crazy. Like, murder is terrible. At the same time, it seems like the whole community, you, you would have only known better if your community was so scared that they were literally willing to murder you in the process because they believed it to such an extent, such a fervor, you know, that mm -hmm. they could just murder you. It's kind of strange because you would want to you would want to see them die if your whole thing was about fertility. Yeah. Yeah, it comes into question, or I guess it calls into question, what, I mean, did did somebody take over them to, to, to that point where they couldn't control? Well, from a purely, like, sociological aspect, like, just the fervor of the community, the season, and how you feel like that, that thing because like, you're gonna think like it doesn't make sense to us but if you were to talk to say a christian i mean i am one you're one so like you know to a certain extent you know there is call to say that someone could be possessed by a demon mm -hmm. and they could act out these rights and that is a normal thing for a christian to say when observing something to an extreme now if you take out the superstition element right mm -hmm. and to us in other words we're not going to say they're possessed by a demon but they're possessed by the fervor of the community. And what is a greater fervor than the survival of the community? If they don't think that they put on an act that is one to give back to the land and they don't put it on strongly enough where they can't, you're literally damning yourself to a certain extent. You're killing yourself. Even to sacrifice your own life in that case yeah. would be, I mean, it, it, would, it would be the same either way in your mind. Yeah, yeah. So the possession in and of itself is like social, almost brought on by something even more extreme. The 
the continuation of your community. Mm. I mean, it's kind of like a, that's kind of a, like a long shot, guys. So like, like I said, before we go any further, I'd like to give like a small disclaimer. Please read the book. Please <laughs> find a place to disagree with me and come after me. Like, because I want to know the truth. And this is just kind of Patrick and I's rumination on what we've read. Yeah. Yeah. And we want to share it because we think it's so fascinating. Granted, if it's so flawed and you guys can pick it apart, then please address yeah. it. Yeah. Because we're just here to discuss it. So if you guys can like hit us up on Instagram or however you want to and just say, you know, you're absolutely wrong, like I would love to know why. Yeah, because speaking from my perspective, my knowledge of this is half of this book. I haven't done any ex external research on it. Um, mm -hmm. I only know the half that I read of the book and what I've been told when I was right. a kid. Which, you know, when, stuff that you're told as a kid sometimes can, ju can just be as simple as your parents made it up on the spot. Mm. Or it can be what society has started to believe whether or not it's true or not. Right. Some of those things actually can bleed into one another. Mm-hmm. Maybe even the thoughts of your community are just developed because Somebody's of one up. person's change up. You know, like somebody's Uncle Herschel's breakfast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in case you guys didn't know, it's a little aside to understand the, like an end joke. I have, I have a sort of a sheepishness when it comes to telling stories that I've heard, not all the time, but anything that's passed word of mouth, I have a sort of a trepidation to it because my father, if you guys have ever been to Cracker Barrel, there's a famous breakfast called Uncle Herschel's Breakfast. And Cracker Barrel, I think, is founded in Lebanon, Tennessee. Uh, yeah, I think so. My great-grandfather, Herschel Broadway, was from Lebanon, Tennessee. Mm, mm. And my father told me that he was friends with, and he, I'm sure dad had made up some sort of name or something, but he had basically known the founder of the original Cracker Barrel. And how and were, were you? I was 12, 13, something <laughs> like that. I was, I was young. Um, and he told me that Uncle Herschel's breakfast is actually my grandfather, and that's, that's you know, in honor of him. Like, he would always order this. They were friends, so he put Uncle Herschel's breakfast on there. For at least seven years, I told everyone I knew <laughs> that Uncle Herschel's breakfast, which is what I ordered, which I will not order ever again, by the way. <laughs> everyone I knew, I told them that, ah, yeah, Uncle Herschel's my grandfather. Like, yeah, they were friends. And I would tell everyone. I mean, there's countless people who are walking around and being like, you know, I know the great-grandson of Uncle Herschel. And I just, <laughs> you know, I just thought it was such a fascinating thing. And it was told with such, like, conviction by me to me by my father. Anyway, I went to Cracker Barrel, I suppose seven years later, with my dad, and I go, oh, I'm gonna get Papa Broadway's breakfast. And he goes, what? And I go, Uncle Herschel's breakfast, it's Herschel Broadway. And he goes, son, I was lying to you. And the sheer terror that came across my face and that I've been lying to people for years, not of any fault of my own, but like, that's like the, like, do you know how embarrassing that is? Like everyone I come across, I have to be like, yeah, you remember that time I told you it was my uh, grandfather? Yeah, that was a lie. Told to me by my father, who I believed because I was young, and I spread it like wildfire because why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I? So. But that's not the only instance of this. 
We're not going to discuss the other one, but I really, that, that's the second time, and that's the reason Patrick knows that yeah. other story. I'm not going to give the details of this other one. I just want to tell you the far-reaching implications of it is that Zach told this other story about someone he knew in college, and I had just, the week prior, been sent a link to a video of a YouTube channel where they talk about the same story. Mm-hmm. And, and then I was like, that sounds so familiar when he told, when he told me the story. I'm like, I've heard that before. And so I'm just saying, like, it's just funny how, how it sort of has, I don't know, it sort of created some kind of gun shyness <laughs> to you. Oh, yeah. Uh, and in my defense, you. like, the story that I told could have been the original. It could have been. The likelihood of that happening is so slim mm-hmm. that I refuse to tell that story ever again. <laughs> uh, I won't do it because I don't want to be made. I have plenty of stories to tell. That are real. That are real that happened to me firsthand. Interesting. Right. So when I tell a secondhand story, you know, I'm going on faith that the person originally had told me that. Mm. Because, I mean, that's true. I mean, like, he was my friend. He told me a lie. My father is my dad. He told me a lie. And I spread that lie. And then someone <laughs> called me on it. Or, in the case of my dad, no one called me on it. And i just been spreading a lie until he righted himself. You know, I, I mean, there is a too. slim chance that Herschel, Uncle Herschel's breakfast is my great grandfather. It could be a super slim chance. Dad might have accidentally stumbled upon one of the weirdest little coincidences ever, turned it into a joke, made me look like a liar. And then inevitably history proved me right. And I was right all along. But the likelihood of that happening is so slim, so improbable that I refuse to tell that story. But Even if I found out it was correct, I wouldn't tell that story. Yeah, but it. it you're damned if you're damned either way because even if you find out right that it was and you tell people oh yeah it really was they're still going to be like well well you're the dumb dumb that said it wasn't mm. so like you said it was and you said it wasn't now you're saying it is you know it's like you're already it's already been i'm not saying you are dumb i'm not saying people say that but i mean for the humor of the joke for the humor of the joke it does look like i'm an idiot because the thing is, is like if I told them that it was a lie, I'm definitely not going to go back and recant because I, I decided to go digging, you know, and then I, I turned out to be it. It happened that I was correct. Only the only reason I would have drugged my feet through this is to prove a point that I didn't even care to prove. I was like trying to prove it wrong and accidentally proved it right. But that would be if like my father doubled down and just said like, no, it's true. Then I would have to go research it. And then if I came to the conclusion that Herschel was my grandfather, no, it's a nightmare scenario. That's why I don't tell things secondhand. And that's why I tell you guys anything that I say, especially things that I've read in books or things that I, you know, it's okay to challenge people, you know, because I prefer to be right. Well, I prefer to be right. That's, I mean, I think that's how life is. Like, what do you mean? I'm I'm not going to say the old cheesy like it's the world we live in nowadays uh, today's world it's always been that way like i think people feel more comfortable talking to people that agree with them right but that's wrong though like like i mean i'm not saying you're wrong for i mean sharing interests is a good thing but always being with someone who always thinks the same way you do where are you ever going to learn where are you going to grow because mm-hmm. um, i mean you're not going to be in school all your life you're not going to be working all your life when you're retired I mean, how are you going to continue to grow and learn? So. Well, the thing is, is I don't think people like to do that necessarily. What? To grow and learn? To grow and learn. 
I mean, I, mean, I could be wrong, but I mean, it feels like they don't. Well, you got some stats to prove it. What was the stat about how many people read books after they get out of school? Like 2% of the nation? Yeah, I think that's like 2%. It's like really low. It, like read for fun. All right. And that's, I mean, I mean, there might be this correlation there, not causation, but still, like it, it's things to think about. You know. And that's just pleasure reading. That's not academic reading necessarily. I mean, I I imagine that we have, we've been averaging about ninety to hundred listeners right now. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I mean, I imagine if we're lucky, ten percent might go find this book and read it. Now that that's actually, I feel like that's a little loaded. I'm talking about a general. This the the problem with the pipe community, and it's not a problem. So you guys, I consider y'all brethren in the smoke or however you want to phrase it they're just a terrible sampling because a lot of them are really educated well yeah i was gonna say we're talking general audiences the pipe community is so different and that's you know probably who's listening i don't mm-hmm. know if anybody out there that listens to us that doesn't either know pipes or smoke pipes mm-hmm. um i could be wrong but if you have stumbled upon us some way and you don't even know anything about pipes well, if you have, that's the reason we talk about pipes and yeah. tobacco at the front. We usually try to unload. We found that if we don't front, uh, front, front end load for unload at the front, up front, the information <laughs> about tobacco and pipes, yeah, then we end up getting caught up in whatever it is that we're discussing. Yeah. Now, and sometimes you, you get lucky and we get long-winded about pipes and tobacco. But, you know, really... Like we said before, we ought to be called Sidetracked. It should be the name of the podcast because we just go down rabbit holes and get sidetracked and go off all these crazy things. Half the time, I feel like the only reason we call it Pipecast, minus the upfront information about tobacco and pipes, yeah. which I think we've done a lot of, and hopefully we're going to delve more into that. I want to do another tobaccoology this year. Yeah. Or in 2020. Um, but uh, it's because like a lot of our conversation has, and a lot of our podcasts is really and truly you're capable of turning us on lighting a bowl and you can smoke the entire bowl and by the time you're done with the bowl you're done listening to us every once in a while i think we do pack a second bowl and try to go a second round uh, i know we did that with a thanksgiving episode which yeah. ended up being pretty well, long actually. yeah like yeah two and a half hour that's a 90 there's 95 listens to it though i don't know if that's their full listens if they just like gave up but i mean you could split that up and probably smoke two bowls if you're interested in that kind of stuff. And I think like, if that's the case, and we find that people are interested in this, I think we're gonna to try to at least find specific topics that we could read on and try to, yeah. like, things that are at least interesting to people. And I find the Santa Claus things interesting. I think, if you really think about it, you know, knowing sort of the origins of this pagan fertility rite is, uh, it's different, at least, you know? Yeah, and I have to commend the author, because, I mean, she points that out at the beginning. It's all, the research all started when her child asked her, you know, who's Santa Claus? Mm-hmm. And she was like, you know, she, I think, again, read, you know, if, you, if you're interested, read the book. But from what I remember, she basically was saying, like, she, she was toying with the idea of just go ahead and just saying, hey, there ain't no Santa Claus. It's, it's made up. But then, you know, of course, the normal people are like, you know, you're going to ruin his child or their childhood or whatever. Right. And then people go into that, well, he's a state of mind stuff, you know, or like whatever. Yeah, it's just, well, yeah, so, but basically she, she then took it and said, well, if I'm going to go along with it, let's figure out. Let's figure where he came from. See, personally, for me, with my children, when I have them, 
my, I may change it by the time this happens, but my thinking is give them, give them to about 10 years old and then be like, pull them to the side and be like, look, man, Santa Claus ain't real. Don't tell anybody. If you got buddies that still believe, just play along, but just, you know. Right. Give, give them a few years where you got to put out the milk and cookies and, and the carrots for the reindeer and you get up in the middle of the night and eat them and drink. Eat the right, and, and in no way do I think that something as magical as Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, uh, I'm not a big fan of the Easter Bunny, but like we leprechauns, we, leprechauns uh, I don't know why I don't like the Easter Bunny, maybe because like I didn't celebrate Easter in any other way than the religious way. Yeah. So like to me, like there was no Easter Bunny that brought anything to me. Heck, I couldn't even really understand why we collected eggs during Easter, which is probably something we're going to get about talking to in the spring. But like, <laughs> outside of those, like I mean, Cupid and Valentine and yeah. you know Halloween, like I think all that stuff's fine, mm-hmm. even though that it draws upon heavy pagan influence, uh, to the point that the Puritans rejected the idea of Christmas altogether, because they knew what it drew a lineage to, you yeah. know? Yeah. I mean, because you're talking about like Catholics trying to take on Western Europe, mm-hmm. and the way they did that, their missionaries really put it upon themselves to convince the leadership, but the but basically the underclass, you know, the lower classes, they kept to the old gods regardless. Yeah. And well, then the church ended up recruiting yeah. uh, shamans, mystic leaders to be a part of the papacy, a part of the priesthood of the Catholic church. And naturally they kept on with yeah. the rights of the old gods. So, you know, you're seeing these semblances even you know pushed out by you know the state in a certain sense or like a large mass religion that's the reason why we have some of these older rites but like i said like the puritans in in a sense were probably the closest thing to i don't want to say the closest thing to christian but in terms of like actually following those kinds of steps that's the reason i mean christmas specifically christ mass or advent in the birth of Christ yep. um, probably happened in the spring yep. Uh, yep. It, there's heavy evidence that Christ was not born in December that December was adopted to take the place of these pagan mm-hmm. the, yeah. holidays but now sort of going on a tangent from that this might be a little controversial but see in my opinion take take the religious idea out of it and just look at paganism as what it is. It, it's history. It's what people did. And I think yes, you should be able to separate it out from the religion, the, the, the reason why you do certain things, the reason why we celebrate Christmas, the, you know, at least why Christians celebrate Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to, to discredit these pagan things is almost, in my in my feelings, the same way as a lot of this stuff is today. With, you know, you find out that some public figure that has a statue or has a street named after them, they did one, they did something wrong, and it's like, oh, we're taking the statue down, we're changing the name of the building or the street. I mean, you're sort of rewriting history and trying to gloss over things. And it does seem like, to a certain extent, it would be as if like. The only difference in that that I can kind of argue. Yeah. So I'm going to use a, a normal, common example. Okay. Yeah. This is a known example. Um, Martin Luther King 
great man, civil rights leader, mm -hmm. pastor. Um, yeah. Also had a womanizing streak, witnessed another woman being raped, and then instructed the individual who was raping her on how to rape her better. Mm -hmm. These are all documented cases. Now, that does not take away from the man in the civil rights, and I don't believe that takes away stuff. Now, people want to strip down a statue, yeah, just like they want to strip down Civil War statues and stuff like that. <laughs> the difference, though, is this. In a certain sort of flip, yeah. Santa Claus sort of was a rapist <laughs> to begin with, and now he's not. Like, so it's like he it grew. Like, right. It'd be like if he grew into a civil rights leader from <laughs> raping. Like, so that's not, like, to a certain, to, to a funny point, it's sort of worse that we're still infatuated with Santa Claus because he sort of started out as not good. Yeah, yeah. And then became good through our own rewriting of history. Well, before Luther King, all his stuff is being sort of stripped away because of this instance. And I'm not yeah. saying what he did was right. And it is not for me to judge no. on him, but he did do some good things. But well, my him. point to Patrick is, is it does seem like, historically, Santa Claus, to a certain extent, was sort of a rapist to yeah. begin with, and then sort of became so, the leader of the civil rights so, movement. I don't know how that's probably done. <laughs> so, in all reality, to the point, to get back to that, to the point, we're all human, mm -hmm. and, and that's the bigger point I like to right. look upon is that people make mistakes, you mm -hmm. know. Um, now, you know, if, like, you know, a lot of people have problems with H.P. Lovecraft because of his, he had certain viewpoints um, during his time. But, I mean, again, it was a different time, not to defend it, but just to say, I mean. We're it, not here to defend no. what, what we know to be. Wrong. Yeah, ethically, you know, problematic. Yeah, um, but we're also not going to basically destroy an entire body of work because exactly. of it. Um, you I can mean, still like the speeches are still beautiful. Yes, MLK gave the stories are still horrifying and really defining that H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft did. They might have both had issues, yeah. you know, um, but you you can't take away from that. Yeah, again, we're human. We do we do good. We have the capability to do good and bad, and that's what makes us, I think, special. Is that we can commit bad things, mm -hmm. but there's always chances to redeem yourself Re as humans and you know as religious people. That's the scary thing is that, that redemption is sort of slowly being stripped away. Yeah, it's like you've got to be perfect. You've got to be perfect. Anything that you've done in your past, yeah. anything that you could potentially do, um, it, it can it can ruin you. Yeah, and that's that 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 can be troubling because. You know, as a Christian, you believe in forgiveness. You that know, it's all built on because that. yeah, because I mean, we were, in a sense, forgiven. Yep. You know, that yeah yeah the the religion was built on the act of forgiving. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's just strange how topics. There's so much. You know, we talked about how this book is so complex. And there's so much in it. And there is, and it's really interesting because it goes on to yeah. Robin Hood. It goes on to Merlin's father being a wild man. Yeah. It goes on to um, Robin Goodfellow, Pan, and yeah. uh, Puck. Satan. Satan himself. Yeah. Literally, the, just real quick, because I, I don't know how close we're going to get on this, but like the name Nicholas. Yeah. Er, and yeah. Old Nick, which is the other name for 
Satan. You know, yeah. I mean, these two entities come out of the same thing. The reason that we understand Satan as a clove-footed, clo uh, pitchfork-horned individual is because that is literally the definition of a wild man. Mm -hmm. To the point that even horns on a hand, uh, horns in a head, is another description for cuckolded male. You know, someone whose wife's been oh, yeah. sleeping around with another person. That the that that has a another depth extension to the fertility right of a of the wild man coming in. Because prior to, was it Pope Gregory? There was no image of Satan. The Bible didn't have images of no, Satan. No, I mean he was an angel. Yeah, like you know. the only I think. But but Gregory's war 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 on the wild man is what yeah. basically yeah. gave this specific, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, Flare, I guess, yeah. to Satan. Now, and in really, in reality, that's what, you know, I've said this numerous times. It's even funny because you can almost flip the letters around. You can. Well, I was Santa say, yeah. and Satan. Yeah. You know? But um, that is where we see that. I mean, the Krampus itself, horned, fanged. I mean, that is a, you look at it and it's like, well, that's the devil. Well, it's the wild man. Oh, wow. It is, it is the devil. It is Santa Claus. It is every personification of all these things. Just blend it out, blend it out, blend it out mm -hmm. until the entity itself is not a club wielding, and the club in this case is another phallic symbol. Fertility <laughs> right deity is a roof jumping, reindeer riding, gift giving. Holly jolly. Magician, basically. Yeah. I mean, what it was once a rejuvenation of the world to a certain extent in the community really sort of became just a magician, an elf. Yeah, I mean, because that—that's the way he's perceived now. He's not perceived as a god. He has powers that are, you know, pretty powerful. I mm. mean, you can get around the world in one night. That's pretty intense. Mm. But like to us, you know, that doesn't mean that it's a deity anymore. Now it's just some guy. Yeah. To make it even more digestible, they—they they also say that he does this out of love of children, and then he wanted to do it on the most holy night, which was Christ's birth. And all that's like wrong. <laughs> you know, it just so happens that they move Christ's birth to compete with Santa Claus, and then he became sort of like this forebear of the times, and then yeah. that becomes like completely mold, like uh, muddied all the way down. I mean, to the point that like, not that this matters to me because it really doesn't, uh, because I think there is a, there is probably another conversation for another time about architecture of religious sites and churches itself but like to the point that like a pagan symbol like a Christmas tree mm -hmm. or a, a almost a, a Greek pagan symbol of the, the wreath which is to Apollo you mm. know yeah when I see a Christmas tree on the altar in the church I always question like what the rationale of that is because yeah. there's nothing I mean it's it's not the cross granted to me the church isn't a holy site anyway it's yeah. just a building where Christians or believers congregate. I just think it's interesting that other believers like have this Christmas tree up front. I've seen this, and it's always startling to me because yeah. I'm like, you guys know that this is not exactly what you believe. But the thing is, is like that's the interesting thing. It's almost like it's been reclaimed by another religion. Well, it, I think it goes back to what you're saying that the the church hired old leaders of the old religions. Mm -hmm. And you know, wanted them to teach Christianity. Of course, they're gonna. I mean, it probably comes from that. I know. I grew up in a, um, a Protestant church, the Church of Christ. You won't find any Christmas. You you won't find wreaths. You won't find Christmas trees 
in the Church of Christ because of that reason. Right. They won't do that. Um, and it, to their point, makes sense. Yeah. You know, uh, but also to their to against the point, like it doesn't matter. I don't think anyone goes into a church uh-uh. and worships a tree. Yeah, like it's it's a little bit different. It's almost like become this whole other thing. The funny thing is, is like how over time people have just forgotten. I got a Christmas tree in my house. It doesn't mean I'm trying to ward off evil spirits. No, it's but just, just over an extended amount of time, people just forget, and then tradition just becomes commonplace on yeah. the norm. Yeah, yeah. It, the status quo. That's the fascinating part about it. It just is what it is. So we we could not recommend this book enough. Um, you know, we probably won't get into everything, but we don't really want to get into everything. We no, I want you guys to read it. Yeah, The book is good. I mean, I read it every Christmas. Unfortunately, it's super dense, so going into it would take hour upon hour upon hour. We just want to touch on the other stuff, maybe kind of get your palette wet and like yeah. make you more interested in reading it and that's the whole point is like maybe to give you this jump start I know that it's another book um, that sort of will touch on the more pagan and like darker elements to Christmas that I plan on reading and discussing next year on Pipecast because I think that this whole thing is interesting the, the truly interesting part is when you start to dig into Christmas to the point that like Santa and Satan are pretty much like cousins mm-hmm. um, but when you start to really 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 dig the interesting part is that you find that Christmas really has a much darker history than Halloween does oh yeah well I've told you this before I have an uncle who uh, you know he he's into a lot of the same stuff we are and we have very similar interests and he, he mentioned this like two or three Christmases ago he was like you know there's that song that says you know we'll um, there'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glory. All that, all that in that Christmas song. Does anybody tell scary stories at Christmas? I don't know of anybody that does. Yeah, I don't know of any scary stories. No. So like, yeah. I mean, there. And what's there was that? Uh, there's that old Christmas game where you snatch things out of a flame, right? That's a Christmas yeah. game. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 Snip, snap, dragon. Yeah. Uh, I, I stumbled upon that game. There's an, an Agatha Christie, uh, Hercule Poirot. Uh, story called uh, Halloween Party, and um, it meant they they at the beginning of the story. Now I haven't read the book. I've watched the BBC production with David Sachet uh, playing. I think it's his name, David Sachet, playing Hercule Poirot. Um, and uh, it, in that uh, adaptation of the story, the kids are the kids are playing the game at this Halloween party. Um, however, they do reference in the in the uh, movie that, you know, it's more of a Christmas game, not a Halloween game, but just for the sake of the story, she put it there. But, yeah, it's more of like a, it's just like a bunch of raisins are put down in like a, sort of like a pan, and it's filled with brandy or some kind of liquor of of that sort, and you light it on fire, and then the kids are trying to grab raisins out without getting lit by the fire, the, the tongue of the dragon, mm-hmm. the snip-snap dragon. And there's this whole chant that goes with it. So there are some there are some things that are still out there just people don't know about it. I mean, mm-hmm. I've watched YouTube videos of people playing it, so I mean, some people know of it. Some people know of it. But it's not commonplace. It's not like well, a Christmas Well, because, tree. I mean, like, you start to lose sight of those things, you know? I mean, to a certain extent, I would say that the, you know, so they're the old gods, say, right? Yeah. 
uh, we'll say the Christmas tree, the wreath, Santa Claus, wild man, yeah. right? Pagan. Sort of replaced by the new gods, and we'll call those uh, Christ, uh, the cross, uh, the church, the papacy, things that would, you know, basically lead into the new yeah. religion. Yeah. And then now, really, they've both taken a backseat to the neo-gods, which is, you know, I know this is going to sound very far extreme to some people, but like, <laughs> you know, I think consumerism, a um, oh, yeah. greed to a certain extent, uh, and just like mass consumption, not to say that like consumerism is bad. You can't like place like the bucket on just one thing. You seem like consumerism. Well, I mean, people have to consume. I mean, that's just the nature of it. And if you everything have does stuff. consume. Yeah, if you have things, I mean, you are a consumer of sorts. Yeah. And I think it's the the love and the sort of of consumption and the love of money and the love of these things that have sort of taken precedent over the love of family, the love of community. I mean, it sounds like, you know, it's funny because it does sound like very hippie-ish, maybe would be a good word, very new agey. Yeah, but I'm not really, I think that some of those principles like will cross those lines a little bit. I mean, mm. I don't want to be completely consumed with consumerism and consumption and greed and fighting over like these little baubles that you ultimately throw away anyway. Yeah. Um, but there's nothing wrong with giving gifts to people. But I do enjoy spending time with my family more than I do buying and, things. And I feel like, you know, again, this is a half-formed idea, so I could be wrong, but it is interesting to think that the wild man came from the idea of, um, you know, doing something. He was, he was killed because it was for the betterment of the community. And then, you know, we slowly have evolved now to this point where consumerism is more, you know, the act of getting someone a gift and all this business. And I think the community, as in the more like micro community of your family, uh, has taken a back seat. So now what is the next logical step possibly is a swindle back or a swing back to doing something more community based. What you, you're seeing, I think, is yeah. where you're going, right? So, yeah, so that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm not saying we're going to get to the point where we're killing, where we're killing some kind of false deity, uh, but you know, it's interesting to see where we will go when we get well, closer I mean, I back people, to that. If you look at REI's like reclaim mm. Black Friday to give back and to be, mm -hmm. I don't know what the term is. What is it called? Oh, opt out. Opt out. Where people are opt not outside. going to consume. They go outside and then they add in a little community service, a little cleaning and then they up doing that. Yeah. yeah, so that's sort of, that might be a reach, but like people are trying to do that kind of thing. So I guess what I was getting at is when we, when that becomes more widespread and people start doing that and which, I mean, it'll take years, it'll take, it'll take decades, but when we get to that point, what will people think of this book? Mm -hmm. Well, what will people think of the age we live in now with consumerism? Right. Like, it'll be weird. I mean, it'll just be a different thing. And in no way do I mean that people aren't reaching out to their community, doing church efforts. My wife and I, even our department, did an angel tree, mm -hmm. two kids, and we donated to the angel tree the Salvation Army does to get them a bicycle and toys for children in need. 
Mm -hmm. uh, my wife and I donate to angel trees, we donate to the church, we do community outreach, things of that nature. I'm not saying that those things do not exist. Please do not misunderstand. Yeah. I'm just saying that the in a, in a sense, the neo-God of that overshadows these kinds of things, which you saw two versions of community. The pagan version also had a like element of community, maybe a little bit of element of like deity sacrifice and some like human sacrifice, maybe even animal sacrifice. But then the Christian would have like that communal mass, the community coming together in one yeah. institution. You know, I mean, like look at a Christmas Carol and all these stories that came out during that time about like giving back to your fellow man and community, etc. And then it sort of like sort of bled into this ah, this just overburdening of like purchase, purchase, purchase. I mean, Patrick and I grew up in the time of like Power Rangers and Furbies and. Tickle me Elmo's, and uh, you, know, you start to see that kind of like mass craze where people are fighting over these toys, because yeah. like why your child's gonna love you? Yeah, you know, I've literally watched videos on YouTube of kids opening bananas and loving it. Yeah, you know kids are very mercurial creatures anyway. They're just like up and down and left and right, and they don't really have any rhyme or reason to what they're doing. And then like, you know. And we go through as adults this like craze to get something. I mean, it just seems it does look a little uh, antithetical to what like you know the past was. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I mean, like that's not you know Christmas has all these types of significances, and I'm not taking away from it by saying that you know. Um, communities and people aren't trying to outreach their community. Yeah. Just some differences. But, um, you know, like I said, without diving too much, because we sort of did like a little overview, the cliff notes, if you will, of uh, Santa Claus, The Last of the Wild Men. I just, uh, I just thought that that would be an interesting topic to discuss the origins of one of our favorite, you know, symbols of Christmas, Father Christmas, I guess, in a sense. Um, and, and his origins, uh, specifically his origins outside of the Christian faith. Yeah, his uh, his origins that mostly otherwise are not known. Right. I mean, because I, I think this is something that does get glossed over, and most people just. Well, I think mostly people just see him as that Christian saint. Yeah. Yeah. Just the Saint Nicholas, the old jolly elf. But the uh, the book is totally worth it. Um, you guys should check it out and yeah. take a read. And it, it is definitely one of my favorite Christmas books. I do give it a, I usually turn through it every Christmas. It doesn't have to be a complete read through. Mm. Sometimes I'll do a retread of some of the chapters like Patrick and I both stated. They're, they're very dense. So you're definitely going to get something out of them every single time you go return to them. Definitely. Um. I, I appreciate Patrick for, because, you know, Patrick, uh, he got through half of the book. I think he's going to complete it, though. You said you were going to finish yeah. it up. Yeah, I'm going to try to complete it before the end of the year. But um, um, I appreciate him just picking it up because he was listening to me uh, just constantly talk about it. And then uh, it was funny because uh, Patrick had the great idea of going through the Thanksgiving traditions. And I was like, you know what? Let's talk about Santa Claus. Yeah. And then sure enough, I mean, Patrick was gung-ho enough to grab the book and like go headlong into it. And that's... Kind of like what we're looking for, you know. And we hope you guys enjoy just that kind, kind of historical lens. Yeah, and, and you know, there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, special episodes of certain shows where, you know, they they um, 
sort of talk about, you know, I guess what they're thankful for and traditions they like to do. Um, those are great, but I think, you know, going into some more obscure, less talked about topics is, a, is fun for me. And at the end of the day, that's really why we do it, just because it's fun. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll have to continue to find more and more as each month goes along. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just be looking forward to that. Right. I don't know if you can hear, but my daughter is a little upset in the background. <laughs> She's been like that today. But, um, but yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, and there won't be a, um, probably won't be a January episode. Uh, that's right. There probably won't be. We'll Actually, um, I don't know. We've, uh, we've pulled some stuff out of, out uh, from our sleeves. Yeah. We might do a quick one. Um, I was actually thinking about doing one, uh, what I call the smoking resolutions, okay. something like that, and uh, talk about um, some resolutions that you and I might have had in the past, things we want to do for the future. That could work. And uh, maybe some of the, the missteps people take when they're trying to resolve a resolution. Okay. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah. So be on the lookout if there is one in January. There you go. Mm-hmm. But don't be too sad if there isn't. <laughs> That's right. But we'll see you guys. We'll reconvene in February. A certain Patrick to my left here uh, will have many stories of the Orient yeah. coming our way yeah. very soon. Just be ready for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, well, how are you on your bowl there? That's pretty much the end of this. Um, same here. Well, as always, we've enjoyed it. And you guys have a Merry Christmas. Yep. Happy Holidays. When you smoke with us, you smoke with the best. Pace is lightning, expectations high. It's gonna come at you fast, come at you hot, gonna come at you wet. <laughs>